invite um, Matthew to come, and he's going to read Scripture for us today. That would be Psalm 1. Psalm 1, I realize many of you have it memorized, um, but uh, let's stand together and let's uh, read this psalm uh, together this morning. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's just pause for a moment of prayer right now, shall we? Lord, we thank you again for your constant goodness to us. Um, Lord, we're reminded that uh, your word is what you have desired to reveal to us. And Lord, when you desire to reveal um, thoughts and ideas to us, Lord, they are significant, they are important, um, they are there for our growth, um, for our understanding, Lord, they are uh, food for our souls. So Lord, help us today um, to take advantage of the, the great blessing that we have, Lord, of your word, that you have communicated your heart to us, you've communicated your truth, and Lord, the, the, the reason for that ultimate, Lord, is that you desire for us to be worshiping creator, uh, creations, Lord, that are coming to you, just adoring you for who you are. And Lord, may we do that today as we study, as we uh, receive, Lord, your truth. And Lord, may you allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece. And Lord, that you would be on display here today. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as uh, some of you know, we have been going through the Gospel of John. We're setting that aside. We will continue it here in a couple of weeks. Um, but I just really... Uh, just really was burdened that we as a church family took some time to discover more specifically what it looks like to grow in Christ. Um, and so that's been the, the, the push and the, the effort um, in this series. Uh, you know, to answer the question, what does it mean to grow in Christ? What does it look like? How are we to live our lives pursuing Christ between the, the cross and the resurrection? What is this progressive sanctification um, that uh, we, we talk about. And, and to answer that question, we're examining five metaphors that are common metaphors in the Bible that are used at many times to describe growth in Christ. They're not all the metaphors, there are more, um, but I've limited it to these five. And the, these metaphors basically are blindness, marriage, trees, heart, and body. And they all kind of give us different perspectives on how to grow in Christ. And let me just kind of paint the picture right now. Um, from where I'm standing, I can look at this lectern or this music stand, and I can see what's on here. You can't. Um, but some of you can see things from different angles about what's up. You might be able to see that there's this little clock, which you should be thankful for, but it doesn't mean anything to me. Um, <laughs> You know, you might see that I have my iPad here and some notes because you're at different angles, or you may not be able to see anything. And, and the, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that these metaphors give us different vantage points to look at what growth in Christ really is about. And the reason this is so important is that I think in our American Christian culture, 
it has been so easy to relegate measuring growth in Christ by, did I read my Bible today? Did I pray today? Did I attend church this week? Did I, and you fill in the blank. And those are all good things. They're, they're means of grace. They're, they're avenues through which God wants us to be involved in but growth isn't necessarily measured by how much and how often and how diligent I am in those things. It's measured in other ways that may include some of that, but we can also kind of allow those things to simply be the measuring stick and read our Bible and actually not even think about what we're reading. Have you ever found yourself singing a song in worship and you get done with the song, you're like, what song did I just sing? Because you're singing the words, but you weren't necessarily interacting with actually what the words mean because you know the song. Um, and so we want to be careful. And we want to see then how, how is growth in Christ revealed in God's word. And these metaphors are really, really helpful. So far, we've looked at blindness and we looked at marriage. Let me just review some of that for you. Blindness um, from 2 Peter chapter 1 reveals this gap between the riches of Christ, that would be the glories of uh, that come as a result of our new life in Christ and the realities of life. Who I am in Christ, how is it described, but how does it relate to the realities of life? And many times there's this gap in understanding of how you connect those two together. We know that we are the, you know, God's creation. We know that we're his children, but we also look at the realities of life, all the different things that we struggle with, that we face, and oftentimes we just don't know how to connect those two. And our growth in Christ, then, is our ability over time to further understand, further apply the riches of Christ to the realities of life. And so you measure growth by saying, aha, I'm improving. I'm connecting the gospel to life in a better, uh, more effective and appropriate way. So there's a different kind of measuring stick for growth in Christ. Then the next one is marriage. And the idea there is that all of us are married to Jesus. He is our husband. And there are many voices, there are many angles out there that are trying to pull us away from Jesus being our true love and our only love and being seduced away to follow their ideas. And so growth in Christ then looks like our ongoing pursuit of being faithful to him as our husband and moving away from those false ideas that seduce us away from this union that we have with Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I, you know, do I love him more? Am I loyal to him more? The reality is we are all failing in that marriage relationship. Jesus is not, but we always want to come back to him because he is that husband who is always there wanting to embrace us and to receive us. So today, we enter into this third metaphor, and I think it's perfectly appropriate being Earth Day that we're talking about trees, okay? I didn't plan it that way, it just, things just land that way. God is humorous at times, is he not, okay? We're looking at trees today, and we're spending most of our time in Psalm 1, uh, Jeremiah 17, and then we'll finish up in Isaiah chapter 55, and depending on how much time we have, uh, mine some things out, but this is just a great kind of landing spot there in Isaiah 55. And as we study these texts, we want to be looking at descriptions of trees that are healthy, that are bearing fruit. We want to be uh, seeking to understand why these trees bear the kind of fruit that they are bearing. Um, we want to see the whole process of growth. 
So to put it in another way, we want to ask, what does this tree look like? What does a healthy tree look like? What is the reason the tree is healthy or unhealthy? What is the key, what are the key principles we can glean from this metaphor to help us understand what our growth in Christ looks like? And so that's the endeavor, that's the, the burden of my heart today is to allow the, the text of God's word to kind of paint a picture for us to help us understand how we are to grow in Christ, what is absolutely necessary, but also how we can measure whether we are growing or not, okay? So let's jump in now to our first passage, and that would be Psalm 1. And the question we're asking here and we're seeking to answer is, in whom or what is our delight? In whom or what is our delight? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the, now I'm used to saying ungodly there, right? You're probably with me there, right? But it says wicked, they both perfect words for it. Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So in Psalm 1, we are given this comparison between the blessed, I want to say the godly man, and the wicked or the ungodly. So there's this comparison laid out for us right at the beginning of this great book of the Psalms. And the idea, first of all, of this blessed um, is twofold. Um, this idea of blessed is, first of all, the blessing that this person is going to experiencing. You want to live a life full of blessing? Well, that kind of, kind of you know, might be the wrong way of, of saying it, but the person who is pursuing the Lord, who is growing in Christ, the fruit of that is going to be blessing. You're going to experience blessing. Now, not necessarily more money, more stuff, you know, happier times, but it's going to be the, the richness that comes from Christ as, uh, as you are being faithful to what he's desiring for you to do. Another way this word is used, though, and this for me was an eye-opener, is that this word is used to describe how people view you. The idea is people are looking on and saying, that person is blessed. Not necessarily financially, but they're just like, this person is fortunate. In other words, there's this draw to say there's something about that person that I want. Again, it's not stuff, but it's a situation in life. It's the ability to cope with life. It's the ability to, to interact and understand what's going on. That person is blessed, and that blessed person then is being looked at by other people who are envious who desire to have that same kind of circumstance. You are fortunate. Now, friends, that's the blessed person. Then there's the ungodly or the wicked person. They're also called in this passage sinners and scoffers. And so let's compare these two groups in this psalm, all right? You're going to have this chart up here. And all I've done is just pull some of the, the key comparison ideas. And obviously in a comparison, if you say one thing about the other, and it doesn't say it about the other, then the opposite would be true. That's what happens in a comparison. So just trying to pull those two things together. First of all, this person, 
The godly person discerns and avoids man's counsel. Now, Psalm 1-1 is actually a very, very important passage of Scripture just to understand the nature of the kind of pressure that is put on those who want to pursue God. Because there are these voices that come in and they're speaking to us and they're seeking to lure us away. Blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers. You see the progression, the walking, standing, sitting. And the description here of the wicked and the, 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 the sinners and the scoffers. There's this progression. There are these voices that are there. And so the godly person discerns those and avoids man's counsel, but the ungodly then ultimately embraces it. It's what they're after. It's what they desire. Okay? Secondly, the godly person um, delights in God's law. The ungodly, though, disregards God's law. They really aren't interested in the law of God. In fact, they want to push it aside. But the person who is godly, this tree that is being talked about, is a tree that is delighting in the law of God. Then, of course, the godly is like that tree. It's a tree that is firmly planted by the river, having its roots going down deep into the water. Of course, the parallel here is the wicked. They are like chaff, which is like the husk of a, of a grain. And what happens is they, you know, they take it and they go to the threshing floor and they throw it up in the air and the wind blows the husks out and it just blows haphazardly everywhere. So you can either be a tree firmly planted, getting your nourishment from the water because of this constant river flowing, or you can be like this chaff just blowing with the winds. Now, isn't that an interesting picture about the winds of culture? How many, I mean, just over the past 50 years, how many different ideologies have blown in and out of American culture? I mean, what's blowing in now and what's blowing out? But God's truth remains the same. God's truth remains firm. And God's people who are standing in God's truth are standing like this tree. But if you disregard it, the ideology of the world just causes you to blow here and blow there and blow aimlessly. Number four, this person um, will stand um, in judgment. The godly person will stand in judgment. The ungodly will not stand in judgment. They will not have a leg to stand on. The only reason you and I will have a leg to stand on is because we're going to be pointing to Christ. Actually, he won't be pointing to Christ. He'll be pointing to us because he'll be standing there speaking on our behalf. He's going to defend us. But the ungodly, they do not have an advocate. They are all alone. They are condemned already. And the fifth thing here is this, that the godly person will enjoy intimacy with God. The ungodly will experience destruction with God. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. And so I, I want to I summarize now just some of the things here that are listed in this, this passage that give us a picture of a healthy tree. So I'm just listing this off. It's not going to be up on the, on the overhead there. The, 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 health, the person, this healthy tree, first of all, is careful and wise with regard to the ungodly influences around him seek to draw them away from Christ. 
So you might want to say, a, a measure of your growth in Christ is your ability to identify false ideology and to avoid it. Secondly, this healthy tree is purposefully planted deep near the rivers of God's word so that he can be feeding and meditating on it at all times. There's something purposeful. He is like a tree planted. It's not haphazard. It's purposeful. I'm planting myself where I will find nourishment. And when that nourishment is coming, I'm meditating on it. The third thing, when the seasons of life come, good and bad, summer, winter, fall, whatever it might be, when life changes, he is prepared, he is strong, he is sustained, and will produce the right kind of fruit at the right time. So this tree, because it's planted, when the changing seasons of life come, will produce the kind of fruit necessary for that particular season. That's a measure of growth. And you can ask yourself, as I've gone through this time of trial, as I've gone through this time of difficulty, have I been producing the kind of fruit that is evidence that I recognize that God is in control, that, that the word of God is feeding my responses, or is this fruit evidence that I've abandoned God during that season of trial? That's a measurement of growth in Christ. The last thing is this, this person is righteous and is known by God. There is this intimate relationship with this person, with God. Now, that is Psalm 1, and we're just kind of going through cursory and pulling these things out because we now want to go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah and um, chapter 17. The question now is this, in whom or what is our trust. Now it's important here for us to grasp the context of what's going on and the occasion for Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah is speaking to a nation that has turned their back on God. The leaders of Judah were prone to trust their political allies and lean on the arm of flesh instead of depending on the power of God to carry them through. That's kind of like the backdrop. This is why now Jeremiah is speaking what he is about to say. And so to emphasize the difference uh, between leaning on the arm of flesh or leaning on God, he says the following, beginning at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. I don't think we want to be there. I don't think we want to camp there. Anyone here ever been to the wilderness in the Middle East? I mean, in Israel in particular? I mean, it is wilderness. There ain't much out there, okay? But now we jump into verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, 
for it leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now friends, this is, this is a powerful contrast, is it not? So Jeremiah here is contrasting this desert bush or this shrub with a fruitful tree that is planted by the water. Again, let's bring out the comparison here. You have the godly, blessed person. You have the cursed or the ungodly being described here. The godly person trusts in the Lord. Um, his trust is the Lord. Not just in the Lord, it is the Lord. The cursed man trusts in man. His trust is flesh. Just think about that. When you are seeking help in your time of difficulty, in whom or in what are you trusting? If it's not the Lord, then it's the other category, right? Flesh, the thinking of man, the ideas of man. Secondly, he is like a tree planted by the stream. The cursed man is like a shrub in the desert. Shrub or a tree, which you would you rather be. That's not like a proverb or anything. It happened to rhyme, but shrub or a tree, what would you rather be? Well, the tree here has its roots deep into the water. The cursed person has no root system. Now, I, I do want us to focus in a little bit on verse 8. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, get this, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Friends, if you struggle with fear, if you struggle with anxiety, what God is saying here through Jeremiah is going to be extremely helpful. Well, it's not really talking about the kind of fear I'm experiencing or the anxiety. I'm Well, hold on a second here. Let God basically listen to your difficulty, your struggle, and give a label for what it is. He talks here about fear. He talks about anxiety. And friends, the reason these people fear or the reason they don't fear has to do with whether their roots are planted in a stream gaining nourishment from the word of God. right? No root system, root system. The fourth thing is this. The healthy tree here, the godly tree, is constantly bearing fruit. The cursed tree will yield bad fruit. Right? I'm just, I'm just trying to pull out the comparisons here. Just help us see what's going on, okay? These are here for a reason. Jeremiah is trying to teach his initial audience this is what's going on. Unbelief turns into or turns life into a parched wasteland. Faith makes it a fruitful orchard. All right? Unbelief results in a shrub in the desert. Belief, trusting in God, results in a tree planted by a stream. That when difficulty come, he will not be afraid, he will not be anxious. In fact, his leaves remain green, and he continues to bear fruit. 
But sadly, these trees are only the evidence of what is going on in the heart of Judah, in particular the Judean leadership. The people and the leadership of Judah, though they or thought they knew their hearts, but God speaks boldly now and tells them that they are deceived. Listen to verse 9, very well-known passage of Scripture, but in its context helps us understand now what the real issue is. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. I am the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now friends, I was watching a movie, a very well-known movie a couple of nights ago called Braveheart. You guys probably have seen it before. It's old, I realize that. And I was watching it, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, and I was reminded how badly the church has been affected by good movies and its theology. The beginning of the movie, someone says to another person, you have to follow your heart. And that's the basis for what happens in the movie. And maybe around the same time, another movie came out, not for adults but for kids, involving an Indian by the name of Pocahontas. And the whole focus there was follow your heart. Friends, we need to understand that is contrary to what Scripture teaches. We don't follow our heart. The heart is not the basis of our understanding of what is true. The heart ultimately is who we are. But who we are needs to be fashioned and shaped by the truth, which is sourced in God, revealed in His Word. Because I can follow my heart, and my heart can be wicked and can be deceitful and can be selfish. Come back next week, and we'll talk about the heart. But here it is. The Judean leadership thought they understood their heart, but they were deceived. And so Jeremiah radically exposes them. Because the land flowing with milk and honey was going to be turned into a parched wasteland with the invasion of the Babylonian army. He is prophesying here their ultimate destruction because they will not be like a tree planted by a stream. Because they're not trusting in God, they're trusting in the flesh of these armies that are their allies who would be crushed by the Babylonian invasion. That's the picture here that gives the setting of this particular passage. Now, there's the backdrop. Here we have this backdrop of understanding of this idea of a tree, a tree that is planted by, uh, by this river or this stream that is bearing fruit, different difficult times come. This is the, the, the kind of picture that's going to help us now to understand this graphic that you have laid out in your handout. This graphic is not original with me, okay? In fact, it is in that book I showed you. The first time I saw this graphic was when David Powelson was teaching on this, and it used to be called the Three Trees Illustration, but it's very, very helpful in us understanding how we grow and change the kind of things that take place in our heart as we wrestle with the circumstances in life, okay? So the details of this illustration come from a variety of texts. I didn't have time to lay them all out, but at least we have enough background to understand some of the things that are being talked about 
in this illustration. And the purpose here then is to help us visually see and process through what growth in Christ looks like with this analogy of this metaphor of a tree. Notice the four words, heat, thorns, cross, and fruit. And it's going to go clockwise from heat around to the fruit. Ultimately, that is typically how things go. Now, let's just move our way around here and describe it. Okay? First of all, uh, we have the heat. We have the heat. This is describing um, your situation, whatever that situation might be. This person's situation in life, difficulties, blessings, temptations. Now, don't just think trial. You know, you, you know, somehow you get a letter in the mail that says you have a distant cousin who put you in, your, put you in their will and you're going to get, you know, a million dollars and, you know, come to the bank and get your check. I realize there are emails that are like that that go to your spam, but let's just say it's real, okay? <laughs> and you get this and you, what do I do with a million dollars? And isn't it strange but understandable how your heart can be affected negatively even when there's blessings? So both trial and blessing are arenas that we need to be mindful of, all right? So what is your situation? What is the heat? You and I are always reacting to things that are happening around us. We're always reacting. We're always responding. We're always making adjustments. We're always evaluating and making decisions and behaving in certain ways. That's the heat. Let me just kind of flesh some things out here, whether it's scorching difficulty of, of, of the, the heat or trial or the, the unexpected rain of blessing, we are always responding. But here's just, I'm just throwing a number of things out, okay? Um, here's John, has a boss who never seems to be satisfied. Mary's husband is more committed to golf than their marriage. Sally is constantly enduring chronic pain. Tim's teenage son has been in trouble since he was 12. Jerry's church is once again going through a gut-wrenching split. Barbara's daughter has her heart set on marrying an unbeliever. Tom is always hoping for that promotion, but it never comes. Jennifer is worn out as she has been in, in and out of the hospital trying to get rid of her cancer. Alex is overwhelmed by the constant need to care for his aging parents. Joanna has just lost her mother. Now, friends, you can just fill in the blank. That's heat. That's the world in which we live. This is the kind of stuff that happens. Now, I am thankful because the Bible presents for us a shockingly real picture of a fallen world. It doesn't give us this kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of idea as to what's going on. It, it lays bare life in the raw. It's honest about things that happen here. And friends, I find that very refreshing. I find it refreshing when, when my trials and struggles and heartaches are understood by God in his word to be real. So this is the heat, okay? This is the heat. Then there are thorns. There are thorns. How do you react? What do you want to believe? So here is this heat. You are going to react in a certain way. You are going to believe some things at that point in time. So this is a person's natural ungodly response to the situation. And you and I are never really passive. We are always making decisions. We're always acting. We're always reacting. We're always responding to the heat or the rain of blessing in our lives. So how do we naturally respond? Let's learn now um, from 
the children of Israel. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to pick it up at verse 1. And I just want you to see the, the heat, the context of what's going on that uh, the Apostle Paul describes as he looks back to the children of Israel. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, in other words, pay attention, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. What is he describing there? Yeah, Israel coming out of Egypt into the wilderness, all their activity that's taking place there. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So all along, Jesus was sustaining them. Nevertheless, most of them, God was not, or with most of them, God was not pleased. Why? For they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were consumed in the wilderness. Well, how? Well, we'll notice, verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That's the first thing, idolatry. Secondly, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So there's sexual immorality. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Listen, these are all describing this thorny response to the heat. Here's their situation. Here they are in the wilderness. They don't like it in the wilderness. So Moses goes up to the mountain. He's gone. What's going to happen? Boom, sexual immorality. Place just, here are these people seeking to honor God and they turn their worship into worshiping this pagan idol and all the stuff that happens now because they're abandoning God and they're worshiping this pagan idol. How quickly God's people can get thorny in their reactions to heat. Now friends, don't be shocked at this list, okay? This is a window into our condition. We complain when there's heat in life, right? And people around us do not like us, so they stop wanting to be around us when we're complaining. They get tired of us. We drown out our pressures with alcohol, even drugs, or fill in the gap. We avoid going to church and being around God's people because we just don't want the confrontation. We don't want to have conviction. We numb ourselves by watching TV or surfing the Internet. We allow envy to set in and consume us. We're just always looking for the, the better path and the greener hill and friends go on these are all thorny responses to the heat of life okay so we have this heat we have these thorns and this whatever the bible um or whatever that heat is or whatever the response is the bible helps us to see how we react to that heat It, it reveals our hearts it reveals our outward behavior It reminds us that we are ultimately sinners who tend to respond in a fallen world sinfully, and every reaction yields its own consequence, even a set of consequences, right? Scripture also makes it clear that these responses are not forced on us. It's not like, well, I didn't have any choice. No, you did. 
They had a choice whether to worship that golden calf. They had a choice whether or not to complain. They had a choice whether or not to test um, Jesus. And we have a choice also. Scripture is clear that these desires and these behaviors and these, these thorns flow out of the thoughts and the motives of the heart. You might want to write down James 4. In Ephesians 4, and in particular, the, the latter part of Ephesians 4, where it describes this kind of quick, natural way of, of how people respond, this anger and wrath and clamor and, and uh, bitterness, followed then by being kind, tenderhearted, loving one another. You don't, you don't have to practice being angry. You don't have to practice being bitter or exercising wrath or clamor, you know, boom, boom, boom. It just pours out. It's just natural. Growth in Christ is beating those things down and forcing a Christ-like response in that moment of heat, which you may not be prepared for, but because you are rooted in the things of God, you are more likely than to exercise godly fruit in that moment. So now we move from the thorns to the cross. Friends, we, we tend to respond thorny. That's our natural response. So now what we need to do is we need to move ourselves to the cross. The cross. Who is God and what does he say and do in Christ? This is again another discussion about the gospel. Another discussion about the riches of Christ. All that we have in Christ. And we need to be reminded of that to gain a greater perspective of our situation. Not only of the heat, but also how we have responded in the context of that heat. So the God of the Bible presents himself as an ever-present help in trouble. He's an ever-present help in that heat. The ultimate example, of course, is Christ, who came to a fallen world to live, die, and rise again. He gave us everything that we need to respond in a godly way to what we face daily. The promise of the cross is not just renewed strength or somehow enhanced wisdom. It really is a new heart that begins to evidence new strength and wisdom in the face of daily trials and blessings. There's a newness about it. It's because of the riches of Christ, because of the gospel, I am not bound by the natural responses of my flesh, which are thorny. I now can respond in a way that is Christ-like. Now that we need to, again, connect the riches of Christ to the realities of life. The realities of life are there is heat, and the realities of life are I have responded to that heat in an ungodly way. So I need to come once again and adore Christ, and I need to be in awe of the gospel, and I need to see what he desires for me to do in the context of what is going on. We need to drink that spiritual food and drink that spiritual drink and no longer act and behave like these people. His patience, his love, his mercy, his courage, his boldness and justice, his grace can be expressed more and more in and through us as we grow in his likeness, as we recognize that he does speak and he does have something to say about how we live our lives in the context of that heat. And even in the mess that we've created because of that heat. Then there's the fruit. In the fruit here, we seek God in repentance and faith. After having seen the cross, after seeing 
the riches of Christ, we now align ourselves with what he says and we now seek to pursue God in repentance and faith. We seek to to respond in a Christ-like way. So this is the person's new godly response to the situation. It is because of what Christ has done that we respond um, no longer in the same way, but in new ways um, because of that cross. Okay, So these new responses produce a harvest of fruitful consequences. Now, I want to illustrate this just by one story. This is fictitious but I want to kind of just use it as an analogy to help us connect um, what is going on here, okay? So I want to talk to you by, about a guy by the name of Billy. If your name is Billy here this morning, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the other Billy um, that is fictitious, okay? Now, Billy has been hoping for a promotion at work. He has served in the same position for over three years, and Three, on three different occasions, he has put in his name for a promotion. The first time he put his name in, he got sick and he missed his interview. The second time he put his name in, the, the, the boss that was his boss for those three or those two or something years walked out on the company just two weeks before, and he had a new boss come and step in, and that new boss didn't know him, and that new boss recommended someone that had been kind of currying up favor to him. So he was passed over. The third time he went through this interview, um, he was visibly nervous and simply was not chosen for the position. Now, that's the heat. That's the circumstance. This is what's going on, and we want to walk through now how the thorns began to uh, be produced in his life. So after the first failed attempt, Billy did his best to see God's purposes in his circumstance. You know, hey, I had an interview, I got sick. God is sovereign, these things happen, right? Okay, but even with this resigned trust of God, there was a nagging question that took root. Does God really care about my promotion. So when he went through the second rejection, he began to get bitter and started to complain in kind of backhanded ways. Not direct, but kind of backhanded ways. When someone failed, he would find some way to say something critical. Not over the top, but subtly. Things like, that was a pretty overwhelming assignment, wasn't it? Or how do they expect you to do an excellent job with such limited resources? After the third rejection, Billy began to be visibly antagonistic at work. He challenged his co-workers in team meetings. He demanded leadership responsibilities. He reminded people of how long he had been with the company. But there was also a secret habit that he had developed. He would steal items from the workplace. Not because he needed things, but because he could. It started with paper clips, and pens, and pencils, then ink cartridges, and reams of paper, and packages of coffee. Just a little bit here, a little bit there. It became a game to him over time. But he would justify it by saying, I deserve that promotion. They should have given it to me. And since they won't give it to me and have treated me in such a disrespectful way, I deserve these, th- these things. It is the least they can do. They owe me. 
The deceitfulness of the heart is revealed by how Billy has responded to the heat of life over time. These changes have not been sudden, but subtle justification of a sinful heart. Now, here's the cross. Billy is sitting in church like he does every week. He loves his church. He loves the people at the church. They're kind. They're real. I might say they're authentic. He, he likes his pastor. He likes the fact that he faithfully preaches God's word. But Billy has desensitized himself to what is being said in particular in the application of what might direct uh, to his heart because he is justified in his behavior, he thinks. But on this day, the words coming from the pastor's mouth are penetrating his very being. It's as if the pastor knew what Billy had been doing. Each illustration, each argument, each warning seemed to be directed at him, and he could feel the squeeze of the Holy Spirit's conviction on his heart, and suddenly he saw himself as God saw him. A man pretending that all is well, a man full of idolatry, a man sinful and selfish, trying to hold it together, a man justified in his own deceit. But the veil of deceit was being lifted and conviction was setting in and he began to weep with God over his heart and the behavior that resulted from the years of discouragement. And then he began to dwell on Christ, the one who was willing to step away from his place of privilege in heaven and came to the earth to go to a cross to carry the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, to be his, Billy's substitute, to be uh, or to give Billy his new life, a new family, and a new citizenship. See, this is all the, the reconciling agent, the reconciling activity of God in this illustration. And then there's fruit. And Billy began to soften to Jesus as his master once again, to see his sin as Christ sees it, to see the damage that it has caused, to see the path, although difficult, that he must walk. To see freedom, hope, and peace that he longed for but had truly forgotten. So Billy sought out a godly brother in Christ and shared his story, asking for prayer, help, and advice, and asking for someone to walk with him as he made reparation and reconciliation for the damage that he has caused by responding to the heat of life in an ungodly way. I won't tell the end of the story except to say this. Billy may have gone into work, confessed his sin, and been fired. Probably very likely. Or maybe, Billy, just maybe, his honesty, his change of countenance and character warmed his boss, and after reparations and some disciplinary action, Billy continued in the same place. Regardless of how that played out, God still wants us to move from the heat and the thorns to the cross and trust him with what fruit looks like. And friends, this is the kind of story that takes place in Christian hearts over and over and over again. Change the name, change the heat, change the thorns, 
You just fill in the blank. But the one thing that never changes is the cross. See, all of this filters then through the cross and ultimately allows us then to to produce the kind of fruit that would truly honor God. And so, and friends, this is the great measure of our growth in Christ. Here are just two statements that I think help us understand from this, this whole big picture of what growth in Christ looks like. How do we respond during seasons of life? That's a really good question. Now remember, we're not perfect. No one in this room is perfect. We are all backbiters and hypocrites. We're selfish. We want our own way. We love comfort. Go down the list. We struggle with these things. But one of the revealing questions is, how do we respond during the seasons of life? Do we respond with the kind of fruit that honors God? Now, honestly, that, that, that fruit might initially be thorny. But then the question is, how quickly do we go to the cross? Because we naturally respond with thorny fruit. It's just, it naturally flows out. And how quickly then do we go to the cross and allow the cross then to reinterpret all that's happening and to expose our sinfulness? How quickly do we do that? How do we respond then when the wind of blessing or the heat of trials enter our lives? It's a very, very important question. Do we put on ungodly fruit, thorns, or do we put on Christ-honoring fruit? The answer to that question is critical and is rooted in a number of similar responses. Maybe we can say it this way. Am I feeding on the word of God? I mean, isn't that one of the themes that we found just in reading those passages, that there's something about this water, and this water is representing the sustenance that we get from God, and that sustenance we get from God is the word of God that is fashioning and shaping that tree? Am I feeding on the gospel? Am I trusting in him? See, we, we know him, we understand his gospel because he has given us his word. The only reason we have a greater understanding of who God is is because he's revealed himself in his word. I know the heavens declare the glory of God, but in a general sense and in a limited sense, we have then specific revelation, which is the word of God that gives us crystal clear understanding of the character and the nature of God, right? We have an understanding then of who he is. We have an understanding then of what he has done in the gospel, and we see it clearly. And because those things are true, we say, where do we get that from? We get it from the word of God. Without the word of God, we will be lost. We wouldn't have that clarity. We wouldn't have that understanding. So the word of God is critically important. The word of God is powerfully effective. So let's move now in our understanding of this, uh, this, this picture, this big picture, and let's think about then the effect of God's word, and we're going to be looking now at Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. Again, very familiar passage of scripture. And because it's a very familiar passage of scripture, please do not tune out but tune in and let's think about what's being said. Isaiah 55, we'll begin at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. I mean, isn't that kind of a similar picture of, of how the word of God is that water that nourishes that tree planted by that rivers of water? So shall my word be that it goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Like, yes, the word of God is powerful. It just penetrates. It does what it needs to do. It affects, it sustains, it does all those things. So the word of God is effective. That's the first thing that we need to see here. God's word will always accomplish its intended purpose. Now, that is wonderful to understand that I do not have to worry about the results of its outcomes. And oftentimes we quote this verse when we think about evangelism, right? I mean, throw out a verse there. The word of God is going to accomplish its purposes. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, throw it out there. Just run away, throw out the word of God, dash away, that kind of, I mean, it's usually <laughs> we're just kind of throwing it out there. But let's, let's you know, it's wonderful that, there's an element of truth to that. It's good to know that the, that the God of the word has a purpose for his word and that he stands behind his word, securing its productivity. In other words, I am not the one who is responsible for its effectiveness. He is the one that does his work. But there is a logical question. What is the purpose of the word of God? We're glad that it accomplishes its purpose. But what is that purpose? What is the ultimate goal of that purpose? That's where we have to read on now. Asking that question, look at verse 12. For you shall go out in what? Joy. And be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Joy, peace, singing, clapping, creation, worships God. Using this analogy now of this word coming down and providing this sustenance to the earth. And the earth turns round and worships the creator, celebrates with joy, is at peace, singing and clapping. And so the purpose of God's word then is to worship God. God is ultimately to drive us to worship him. Now, continuing again, we say, well, well, how does that happen? What does that look like? How is worship produced? Look at verse 13 now. This worship ultimately is produced with a radical heart transformation. Look at verse 13. This is powerful. Instead of the thorn shall come up what? Cypress. Instead of a briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now, friends, just get the picture of this. Get the picture of what is being, being portrayed for us here. We are like this thorn bush. We are like this briar bush. And when the word of God reigns on the earth, brings sustenance to creation, in particular to the vegetation here. 
That word will take the thorn bush, it will take the briar bush, and it will create, it will change, it will radically transform them to be a cypress tree or a myrtle tree. Now that's powerful, friends. You might look in the mirror and what you see is a thorn bush. But God is at work in you. And he has in mind cypress tree. You might look and say, a, you know, look, see a briar patch. And briar patches, I mean, you try and get through them, you get covered with all kinds of stuff and snag your clothes. They're awful. Well, who wants to be a briar patch? But ultimately, that's what we look like. But God, through his word, produces a myrtle tree. Now, friends, this is just a beautiful picture of what God is doing to us. This is tree theology. This is seeing growth in Christ, not as simply me doing A, B, C, D. Hmm, I must be growing in Christ. No, this is me recognizing that growth is much more organic. It means purposefully planting myself by those rivers of water. So that takes us then to our, our final concluding thoughts here. I just wanna, don't want to jump ahead. The first thing is this. We want to be rooted. We want to purposely say, God, I want to plant myself firmly and deeply by the stream of water, by these rivers, and I want to gain nourishment from your word, which you have rained and you have provided for me. But it means that you and I have to be purposeful. That means that you and I must say, spending time in God's word is critically important. Now that's different than saying, Read your four chapters every day. I can tell you, you know, eat a meal every day. Or I can tell you, be satisfied with food every day. Now you might say, well, I'm going to eat more then. Fine. Someday. I, yesterday, I, I, I read like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel in kind of an image here because we were at the men's barbecue and I had ribs and chicken and kibasa and I mean I was feeding 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 and honestly last night for dinner I I didn't have anything feeding on God's word though is not just something you check off feeding means that you're being satisfied you're being nourished you're being strengthened you're being washed by that word so it's a different measuring stick but it means that we must purpose to plant ourselves in the right place, to be rooted. Secondly, to be nourished. Be nourished by what matters. The word of God. It reveals the character of God. It reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reveals your nature. It reveals your sin. It re you are nourished when you are rooted. Now, the reality is, friends, hear this. Every believer really is planted by the rivers of water. You and I all have the privilege of having the word of God. The question is, are we being nourished by it? Okay, that's just taking that analogy. Or we can, we can have it. And, you know, in our homes, we probably have multiple Bibles, right? I, I do. And in my office, I have multiple Bibles, and I have a box full of Bibles, and I got, I got lots of Bibles. The question is, Am I reading it? Yes, but am I being nourished by the Word? Okay? And there's a variety of ways that we 
make sure we're doing that. The third thing is be fruitful. When the seasons of life blow, determine in your heart that you are going to honor God and to be bearing the kind of fruit that comes out of the riches of Christ or the gospel of Jesus Christ or his word. Be fruitful. It's your goal. Now, you're going to fail. But the purpose and the goal here is to consistently and more consistently bear the kind of fruit that is Christ-like. Okay? Now, Ted Tripp uses this wonderful illustration about, you know, about a tree that he wants to bear fruit. And so what he does, he goes out and buys a bushel of apples. And he goes into his backyard and he staples the apples to the tree. So, you know, wife comes home, look, oh, oh, yeah, look, it's bearing fruit. The problem is that fruit ends up withering and dying. So we're not talking here about false fruit. We're talking about the real fruit that comes from being rooted and being nourished by the word of God. Okay? Be fruitful. Be faithful is the next one. Be faithful. Remain. Trust the nourishment. Trust the root. And this is where in the storms of life, okay, taking the analogy, kind of adding it to the ones we've already looked at, there are different voices that are going to say, ah, that nourishment, oh, it's helpful, but it's not sufficient. You need something else. But God is saying, trust it. Go back to that, that Jeremiah passage a minute. Jeremiah 17. It says in verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Then down in verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Not just in the Lord, his trust is the Lord. Okay? When you are trusting the word of God, whom are you trusting ultimately? The God who revealed it. So it's important then to recognize that a faithful tree desiring to bear good fruit is going to trust in the nourishment that it's feeding on, that it is what it needs to bear the right kind of fruit. There are voices, though, that will say, trust something else. And we need to be faithful. The last thing, then, is this. Be grateful. God has created his word for the purpose of our ability to worship him for who he is, what he has done, how awesome and how great he is. He wants us to praise him. He wants us to be grateful. He wants us to clap our hands. He wants us to sing praises to his name. He wants us to celebrate what only he could do and providing us a means of growth in this world. When heat comes, guys, and heat will always come, you will always react. And growth in Christ is measured by how often and how much more we are reacting in a Christ-like way. Even when we initially respond in an ungodly way, how quickly we run to the gospel 
and allow it to change us so that we can respond to him in a Christ-like way. Lord, help us today to consider our own lives, to consider the heat that we're experiencing, Lord, to consider the thorns that we have created, and Lord, then to consider you and what you have done on the cross, and Lord, what it what the gospel means and all the benefits and the promises that we have in the gospel, Lord, how they drive us to a place of repentance and faith in you and then trusting you, Lord, to press on and to bear the kind of fruit that would reflect you working in us, your word totally, completely nourishing our hearts for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for these images that help us understand, Lord, how you desire for us to relate to you, and Lord, how you desire for us to grow and change. Thank you for your word. And Lord, there are, there are people right now in this room who are going through extreme times of heat. Lord, there are some who will in the next few days. And Lord, I ask that we would be ready to root ourselves, Lord, in the right place to tap ourselves, Lord, into that water and to be nourished and strengthened by you. Protect us, Lord, from, from all those voices and all those false placebo nourishments, Lord, that are out there. But, Lord, to trust in what you have given us, Lord, the sustenance that you provide. And then, Lord, to do our best to glorify you with it. We need your help. But, Lord, we thank you for your guidance and for your Holy Spirit and for your word that will help us, Lord, to do that. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.